0: In 2012, Uber was a year old and starting to attract a lot of attention. In an interview, its founder, Travis Kalanick, was asked to explain his new startup. My name is Travis Kalanick. We like to say that Uber is efficiency with elegance on top. What exactly did Kalanick mean when he said that Uber is efficiency? Probably something to do with ease of use. The way there is no wasted time looking for a cab or the hassle of handing over cash. Less friction, as people in Silicon Valley like to say. And who can deny that Uber is generally an easier, more pleasant experience than a cab? But Uber is also efficient in a different, more ethically complicated way. Their choice to designate their workforce as independent contractors. This allows Uber to limit their legal and financial obligations to their drivers, such as overtime pay, gas and vehicle maintenance, minimum wage protections, unionization, and unemployment insurance. You might think Uber's evasion of these responsibilities is simply heartless greed. You wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But it is also the result of a logic where efficiency is valued above all else, even above the deeper needs of human beings. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the way big ideas shape our lives. I'm Zachary Davis. This episode is about efficiency and the way it migrated from being a technical description of early industrial machinery to become a moral virtue in itself.
1: My name is Jennifer Alexander, and I'm a historian of technology at the University of Minnesota.
0: Jennifer wrote a book called The Mantra of Efficiency. I asked her where the idea of efficiency first came from.
1: Well, it's a pretty old concept. It's, the word itself is first used uh, in philosophy, and uh, Aristotle's idea of the four causes, the, the efficient cause being the um, actual physically effective
0: action. Picture in your mind Michelangelo's sculpture of David. What caused this work of art to exist? Aristotle would have said that there were several causes. For example, it wouldn't exist without the marble material that it was made with, or without the Florence patrons who commissioned it. But the efficient cause was Michelangelo himself. Hammer and chisel in hand, directly changing something in the world. In the Middle Ages, the theologian Thomas Aquinas applied Aristotle's idea of the efficient cause to God himself as the only thing in the universe that isn't caused by something else.
1: So God was the efficient prime mover who had started the world, started the universe and and the rotations of, of the heavens. And so the word became associated then with the power of the creator God.
0: As efficiency came to be understood as a divine property, it began to encompass other qualities attributed to God including simplicity, foresight, and management, God was seen as a cosmic householder, perfectly managing his creations and distributing resources. The religious term for this management came from the Greek word oikonomia, economy. And it was believed that in God's efficient economy, nothing was wasted. In the mid-1700s, the Industrial Revolution was underway in England. New machines and processes were being developed to make production of goods like cloth and iron faster and easier. The most important machine was the water wheel. These were large wheels built next to rivers or streams that would convert the energy of the flowing water into power to drive a gear or belt. As water wheels spread, people started to wonder about the relationship of energy input and output. In other words, they wanted to know if any of the water power was being wasted. People knew that water was very powerful. I mean, it's heavy, and if it's moving quickly, it has a lot of
1: power. People didn't agree on how to measure power either. But they knew that when they tried to tame it, to send it down down a particular chute or something to run a mill or run a water wheel for a mill or something, that they lost a lot of that oomph. They lost a lot of it. And so I think early on, the connection with efficiency was through worries about loss. And so it was an attempt to try within that system to, to get as much as you could out of it to make sure that the water going through the water wheel went as smoothly as possible. People knew that if there was turbulence, that that decreased its power, decreased its effectiveness. So there wouldn't be splashings. So the thing would go really smoothly. It wouldn't hit any hard corners or anything like this. So people began to work on ways to, to intensify what they could get out of a
0: given amount. One of the people working on this problem was John Smeaton, considered the first civil engineer who in the 1750s conducted research on how to limit power loss in water wheels.
1: The thing about machines being able to measure inputs and outputs, because the machine does have moving parts, and one of the ways to measure uh, things that are done is to measure work, which is a something weighs something, the movement of, a, of something that weighs a certain amount of a mass over a distance. And so you can measure the amount of stuff you put into the machine in terms of work and the stuff you get out. At least you can do that with a water wheel, because there... And what's interesting there is you know the amount of water coming into a system through the weight of the water, and it falls a certain distance or does some kind of work at the other end. So you can measure, again, a mass over a distance at the other end, and you can compare them directly. And you can do things to um, better control the
0: water. In order to control all the variables in his experiments, Smeaton created a small model water wheel, about chest high, with a wheel that was about 20 inches in diameter. He would then measure how changes to the design of his model affected total work output. His relentless quest to eliminate wasted energy led to dramatic improvements in waterwheel design. His efforts accelerated the Industrial Revolution and cemented the idea that progress is closely connected to practices of measurement and control. Efficiency had been brought down from God's celestial economy to our own. Over time, efficiency started being seen as something good not just for machines, but for societies and individuals too. Darwin's theories seemed to support the idea that the organisms that were most efficient with resources were more likely to survive. This led to new anxieties and fears about the fitness and efficiency of national populations, especially in times of crisis.
1: One of them was Britain's, the Boer War in South Africa, right around the year 1900. But a sense of threat to the British Empire heightened when so many people, were young men, were examined for service and found to be unfit. And so there were discussions of the inefficiency of the British population, but also connected to questions about eugenics and inability to produce and nurture strong young men. The United States has uh, similar questions around immigration and worries about the efficiency of the population being diluted by immigration. The elephant in the room is Germany and German uh, conceptions of society not so much as a machine, as an organism with healthy and unhealthy parts and that needs to be treated with the therapy. There are eugenic strands within German thought that take up the efficiency measure pretty carefully. It's in some textbooks from 1926, 1927, discussing the efficiency of the German population, for example, and things that are threats to that.
0: Anxieties about social efficiency didn't die along with eugenics in World War II, however. It is still frequently invoked as a disciplinary measure to perceived scarcity and threat, especially by politicians. We're
2: all here for a simple reason.
1: At a time when we face not only a fiscal crisis, but also a host of difficult challenges as a nation, business as usual in Washington
2: just won't cut it. Uh, We need a government that's more efficient, that's more effective, and far more fiscally responsible.
0: That was former President Obama in 2009. And here's current Secretary of State Rex Tillerson justifying proposed State Department budget cuts. I'm
1: confident that with the input of the men and women of the State Department, We are going
0: to construct a way forward that allows us to be much more effective, uh, much more efficient, and be able to do a lot with fewer dollars. The danger of this kind of discourse is that it often assumes efficiency is a value in itself rather than as a means to something else. After all, cutting government funding for the State Department, PBS, or the NEA will technically improve the ratio of taxes and expenditures and thus make the government more efficient. But to what end?
1: What I think is we use the term efficiency to make our decisions seem objective or to give them some objective basis when they are really, in many instances, just discretionary, just decisions we make for whatever reason. The term efficiency makes them seem objective because what efficiency measures is how well you control the system, not really what you achieve. And one of the most striking things to me was to read the struggles of the economic historian Robert William Fogel. Uh, he really struggled to understand efficiency through his career, because he originally conceived of it as a moral good by and of, of and by itself. And late in his career, he had to decouple efficiency and virtue and realize that even an efficient system wasn't necessarily a virtuous one. And he did this after a series of studies of slavery and how efficient Southern free war before the Civil War, how efficient slavery had been in the United States before the Civil War compared to the efficiency of northern free farming. And his work was extraordinarily controversial, and it was very painful for him that it was so controversial because he, his finding was that South southern plantation slavery had been more efficient than northern free farming and he had not known how to account for that. He had thought, how can a despicable system be efficient? Because his commitment had been to efficiency is the outcome of freedom and hard work, etc.,
0: So what Fogel did was attribute the efficiency of slavery to the good work ethic of the slaves. It was an attempt to explain how an awful institution was so viable. He wrote about all of this in a 1974 book, Time on the Cross. The book was hugely controversial. Fogel had intended to praise the stamina and fortitude of slaves, but many thought the book was apologetic for slavery. It sparked a lot of research into the systems of slavery, the conditions, and the economic impact of it. At
1: the end, Fogel changed his, his mind. He wrote another book in 1989 in which he said, I had to decouple efficiency and virtue and realize that the efficiency came not from the virtues of the workers, but from the coercion under which they worked. And, and I think Fogel's struggle illustrates what many people probably do think. By and large, efficiency is a good thing. Not just good in certain circumstances, but by and large, it's better to be efficient than not to be efficient. And we think of it as a virtue because we associate it with things like control and understanding and discipline. That's what we associate it with.
0: What would a society look like that elevated control, understanding, and efficiency as its highest values? Probably a lot like Silicon Valley.
1: This is Soylent, a scientific-looking amalgam of protein, flour, vitamins, and minerals
0: Nothing represents the excessive pursuit of efficiency quite like Soylent, a product popular in Silicon Valley as a meal replacement drink to save workers more time. This is from a video made about Soylent by the tech publication, The Verge.
1: It's supposed to give you pretty much everything you need to survive and nothing else. There's no joy to Soylent, only purpose. It's just cheap, nutritious liquid that dispenses with the entertainment and social aspect of eating and gets down to business.
0: When even the pleasure of meals are considered inefficient, It isn't too surprising that Silicon Valley is behind the technology and processes that have resulted in the gig economy, an interconnected series of companies and practices that take the logic of efficiency as far as possible. In some cases, such as with Uber, TaskRabbit, or Airbnb, companies deliberately violate labor laws in the pursuit of lower operating costs. But such values are not limited to startup culture. Increasingly, efficiency is deeply entwined with notions of personal success and productivity. A good life has come to be seen as synonymous with an efficient life. If you are a typical citizen of the information age, then you must be very busy. So much to do, so little time to do it. Surely you have asked yourself the question, how can I be more efficient? Such an orientation, though, means that we are constantly on the lookout for things that are wasteful in order to be more efficient and productive. But again, productive for what? Too often, I think this means productive for our careers and not necessarily productive for our mental health, moral development, or relationships with friends and family. Can we resist the modern cult of efficiency? On the front lines of this battle is Tom Hodgkinson, editor of The Idler, a magazine dedicated to, one might say, inefficiency.
2: The situation that we're in, you know, is Henry Ford. It's production lines, it's um, robotics. And how can the owner of the, the factory, the owner of the business, get the most product at the highest price with the lowest cost? That's why we're motivated to be efficient and productive. So, with the Idler magazine, you know, we've, we've tried to resist that it's a utilitarian tendency, you know, um, which is kind of fine. I mean, it's, it can be quite beautiful and lovely wonderful to look at spreadsheets, reduced costs and so on, and waste is bad. But uh, I think we overemphasize that part of life to the uh, and neglect probably the more important part of life, which I could call the romantic part. And that's just like, you can't really quantify, um, you know, love, beauty, pleasure in poetry, singing, dancing, all culture and arts, um, films, uh, doing nothing, you know, doing things for their own sake, which don't get you anywhere. (laughs) Um, uh, for example, I, I was playing the ukulele last night, um, Vivaldi. All my family hate listening to it. Um, I'm never going to make any money out of it. Uh, it's a, a complete waste of time. Um, but I really enjoy doing it, and it sort of makes me feel better. Singing in the choir, helping out in the community. Um, stuff that you do for its own sake, which you're not going to get paid for. That part of life is not emphasized enough, I don't think, in my view.
0: Jennifer Alexander echoed these sentiments.
1: I think some of the things that are most valuable to us are not amenable to that kind of rational control. Love, faith, family, vocation. Um, These are things that that we, I don't think, should subject to that kind of searching calculus. I don't think we need to be efficient all the
0: time. Efficiency is one of the central concepts of our modern age and is responsible for great advances in technology. But it has the potential to make us too focused on only the things in life that can be neatly measured, analyzed, and controlled. The most valuable parts of life lie precisely outside measurement and analysis, stubbornly resisting all our doomed efforts to contain, capture, or fully comprehend them. Instead of banishing them, we should make even more room for them in our lives and in our hearts. Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Pub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today I want to tell you about a Hub & Spoke show called The Lonely Palette. It's a show about art history, but also about so much more. It's about how we think about ourselves and our culture. The show is hosted by a very engaging art historian named Tamar Avishai, and one of my favorite episodes is actually the first one, about Paul Cézanne, and his seemingly distorted fruits. By the end, you'll understand so much more about the origins of modern art and the world we live in. Check it out at thelonelypalette.com.